Hi, everyone. I'm Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. So we know that you guys are inquisitive and critical thinkers, so we are going to be introducing kind of a new approach to this topic. And Aaron Martinick has been so gracious as to join us. We're really glad that you could be here with us Thank today. Thank you for having me. I yeah. appreciate it. Nice I'm excited. <laughs> yes, nice to meet yeah. you. I know. I finally get to see her face. She's beautiful. I promise. <laughs> I promise. She's all right. <laughs> We are super excited that you are here with us today because you yourself have so much background and history in this kind of stuff, which we will, of course, dive into. But then you also have some personal stakes and some things. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. But if you would just kind of like kick us off with your background, your career experience, that kind of stuff and talk to us about you. I'm Erin. I was a police officer here in Oregon. I started in 2013 and I was on patrol for a couple years here locally. And then I became an investigator with a district attorney's office. So still a police position, but was uh, doing some further investigations on crimes. And I have recently decided to go to law school so I can continue on in the crime fighting world just in a different role. You also come from a family of like law enforcement. Yes. Yeah. Dad was in law enforcement, still is in law enforcement for probably over 30 years, I would guess. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. A lot of background there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so I did a lot of human trafficking work when I was in patrol. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, it's everywhere, including right here under our noses. So that's kind of what I want to continue on as a prosecutor in federal court. For human trafficking specifically? Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a huge problem. It's a huge problem, especially on the West Coast. The port cities, they come in through the ports and then the I-5 corridor and then off to Vegas is really bad. It's weird how they that it's such a it's an epidemic and it's still not talked about as much as it should be it's right under our noses and it's something that can happen you know a couple degrees of separation from you and you might not even be aware of it yes part of that too and you can correct me if i'm wrong i think in communities or in countries like our own where we live in the united states we think that this is something that third world countries deal with we don't want to recognize that this is an issue that we have within the united states because we should be quote-unquote above it but i think that's with so many things that we feel like in certain communities that we shouldn't be impacted by things that are literally everywhere right yeah and the average age of entry into human trafficking right now is 13 in the united states Oh, yes. They're babies. They're babies. They're children. That is so young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such an interesting background. (laughs) I love it. I'll tell you a little bit about what I did to prepare to this because I wanted to be respectful of your time and how, you know, the expertise that you're bringing to us. And I didn't want to ask you stupid questions or just not be informed about Mm -mm. everything. So I, I did a lot of obviously Googling and researching on specific things. But one of the things that I I heard and and Mackenzie put me onto this was a podcast that your dad was on. Yes. And who's Brian Martinick is her dad. Brian Martinick. And this is a, also a Portland based podcast and he did it with two gentlemen who they discussed what we're here to discuss today, which is Taylor's law. And one of the things that your dad did so eloquently and I hope that you you know would be willing to share with us today to be first of all tell us a little bit about who Taylor was and his life because I don't want that to be forgotten and you. you know so if you if you could start with that tell us a little bit about your brother and 
And I do want to mention that the podcast that Brian was on was called Henry's Uncle Podcast. So if you guys go over there after you're done listening to this one, they did a great job with it. They did address like the opioid crisis and everything Mm -hmm. like that in a really great way. But yeah, as Fatina was saying, if you would tell us a little bit about your brother, Taylor. Sure. So I am the oldest of four kids. Taylor is a year younger than me, was a year younger than me. We grew up obviously doing everything together. Taylor was the light of everyone's life. He was probably everyone's biggest cheerleader. You will hear that from anybody and mm-hmm. everybody that you have ever met. Also that he was everyone's boyfriend, it seems like. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Not even we will, joking. We will go into this at some point. But I told He's Aaron. A handsome guy. I told yes. Aaron, like, if I had met Taylor. Yes. I would have, yeah, I would have been in it. (laughs) At his prayer service, we were just talking about this on the way over at his prayer service after he passed away. There were multiple, multiple people that got up there and said, Taylor was the love of my life, which that just, I mean, really, it just shows who he is. He, he was so sweet and so happy and loving. And he brought, he would just bring everybody in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's one of those people that like, when people say he lit up a room, I feel like that's so overused, but it's so true of the impression that I have of Taylor. It's crazy to me that you can have multiple girls in one room, all stand up and be like, this guy was the love of my life and not have a big brawl. All breakout, yes. <laughs> but like the like the way he handled his relationships was in such a way it just generated good feelings from people right. yes. rather than like having it be a source of like contention or something. Set the standard, yeah. so to say, for the next boyfriend. <laughs> yes, he 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 was. He had some incredible friends, and he made sure the whole world knew about it. And so that's that's one thing that we are all missing is Taylor was everyone's biggest cheerleader. He was. He was pretty special about that. He was also a college football player. He unfortunately got some injuries, and that's where the problem started. Okay. Yeah. So he injured his shoulder a couple times in high school football and then again in college football. He had multiple surgeries on it, and then I think it actually tore again, and they weren't able to do surgery. So that's where the painkillers started. And then he became addicted to opioids. You know, he wanted to continue Mm -hmm. playing, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to continue doing things in his right. life. And so, you know, he was given painkillers, not trying to push blame on anybody, but he was prescribed them. He took them. No one really had an understanding before this whole opioid epidemic really, really started that he needed to get off of them. And he played football here locally, right? He did. He played for Portland State. Right. He was a Viking. Yeah. So he went to high school here, played football here, and then stayed here and played college football. And then once his shoulder wasn't able to heal, he had to stop. Oh, okay. He was, I think he wasn't released to play football anymore. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. So that was another thing right. that made it difficult was he was no longer to play the sport that he loved. Yeah, no longer spend able so much to play. Time perfecting yeah. your art of sport. Of, yes. You know, football. And- when I think for Taylor, that was an outlet for him. So, yes. mm-hmm. and I think that's true of sports in general right. yes. for people is like it's a way of channeling energy. And if I remember right, your brother also had ADHD, right? Yes. So it's something like that kept him preoccupied, mm. kept him busy. And then yes. he was left with a lot of time on his hands, it sounds like. Yes. He had a lot of time on his hands. So at that point, he, he wasn't able to get prescriptions anymore. Because he had, you know, overrun his prescriptions at that point. So that's when he turned to the streets, essentially. And so he started looking for pills that he could buy from other people. It included Xanax to calm him down from his ADHD because he was Mm -hmm. no longer playing football. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also Oxycontin is what he was looking for. It's really interesting to me, too, how often we find ADHD. And 
like mental health in general, but uh, like especially ADHD with people that have substance abuse problems. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Tell us kind of where things progressed there for him at that point. So Taylor was in and out. He had gone to rehab, so an inpatient rehab Mm -hmm. two times, I think once in 2015 and then once again in 2016, I think Mm -hmm. were the roughly the dates. You know, rehab facilities are not set up the way that I think they need to be set up yet. They are, Mm -hmm. you know, they they don't have enough resources, unfortunately. Right. Right. So once you are able to check off all their boxes, you're released. So Mm -hmm. he was there at the longest, I want to say two weeks. And then the other one was maybe 10 days. He presented himself well. He knew how to dress up nicely. Well-spoken. Well-spoken. He didn't want to be there. Right. So, you know, he he didn't want to be there. So he was able to (laughs) communicate. In the most respectful way. He was a great manipulator. Yes. So, like, she was telling me that he talked his way out of submitting his junior paper in high school. Yes. (laughs) And, like, that, I'm imagining that that's kind of the same skills that he used to get himself out of treatment and stuff. Yes, absolutely. He was probably the best salesperson you will ever meet. That was what he did for work. That's funny. Yes, he was a salesperson. And he did work as a salesperson. And he can sell himself. Yes, he could sell anything. And he was incredible at it. And actually, the last year of his life was probably... The best year we had had in mm-hmm. quite a few years. He was doing really well. He was working. Uh, he and I were on a, an adult volleyball team together. We played, and it was incredible. That's it was awesome. so much fun. Taylor and Jordan were awesome because they were both tall. They knew nothing about volleyball. Jordan awesome. came home after playing volleyball with him, and he was like, oh, yeah, it was great, and blah, blah, blah. But Aaron's brother, yes. he, like, loved him right away. Taylor was great with men and women, I yes. guess. <laughs> My yes, brother was just like he's fantastic. We had so much fun. But yeah, so we were playing back we were playing volleyball. We would do dinners. He eventually got on his feet and was able to move out with two of his best friends in October of 2016 and he was loving it he had his own place he was uh plumping up his cat because there were coyotes around and so he wanted his cat to be able to fight off the coyotes this is these are the kinds of things taylor would think of (laughs) trying to get his cat fight ready yes he was getting her ready to protect herself i'm imagining like a rocky montage of him pumping iron with his cat next to him I wouldn't be surprised if that is exactly what happened. He's like training the cat Olympic style. <laughs> yes, he was. He uh, actually hosted Friendsgiving at his place that year. Wow. I mean, that's how well he was doing. He was so successful. Uh, we had a great Christmas, all of us together, my family, all four kids and my parents. And then he was getting promoted to manager at his new work because he was doing so well as a salesperson. He was talking to us over Christmas about how excited he was about getting promoted. But you could tell he was getting a little nervous. And so that's unfortunately when relapses would happen. Stress, nerves, Mm -hmm. obviously not blaming the promotion, but that is when triggers would happen. Yeah. And so unfortunately, January 14th, 2017, he was found by his roommates. He had passed away from a fentanyl overdose. So he had gone out and purchased what he thought were oxycodone and Xanax. When they tested them in the labs, found out that they were actually laced with fentanyl. So someone had purchased fentanyl, Mm -hmm. used it to Mm -hmm. press the pills to look like Xanax and Oxy. You were supposed to be on shift that night working that area. I was supposed to be on patrol working his district. I would have been dispatched to his death call. Yeah, you would have had to respond to him. Yes. And thank God. Literally, that's like, that is a God thing. It it had to be. It had to be. I I took it off to be there for my sister's dance, to help her get ready for her dance. 
Yeah. Otherwise, I would have responded. Unfortunately, my best friend, one of my best friends at the sheriff's office had to be the one to tell my parents. Oh, shit. Yeah. But I wasn't there. Thankfully. Thankfully. Right. Because you were very close with Taylor. Taylor and, and I were very close. I saw, I met you very shortly after he passed. It was something that you were really struggling with for obvious reasons. And I don't know how you would recover from something like that if you were the one that responded to your own brother. I don't know that I would have. I'm very blessed in that sense. Yeah. That right. I did not have that to go to that. Things happen the way they did if yes. they had to happen that way. Yes. I want to go into the definition of what is fentanyl. Educate maybe our listeners a little mm-hmm. bit. Obviously, we know that this is an epidemic and this is overwhelmingly taking over our drugs in the U.S., one way or another. So I'm going to read the exact definition of what is fentanyl straight from the U.S. DEA, the Drug Drug Enforcement Administration. So their definition of fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Pharmaceutical fentanyl was originally developed for pain management treatment of cancer patients which is traditionally prescribed in a dermal or skin mm-hmm. patch, or now there's also lollipops because they're administered orally. They enter the system faster for people who are in chronic pain. So fentanyl is, again, synthetically developed, and it started in 1959-1960, and it was introduced as first an intravenous anesthetic Now, an interesting fact about this is that at that point, of course, it was developed for people who had developed a tolerance for other opioids or other pain management pills. I didn't realize that. And here's the interesting part. In 19... Page turning here. Page turning, as usual. In 1981, the inventor of this, Mr. Janssen, lost the patent. The patent expired on it. And this is the turning point when pharmaceutical companies jumped on it, jumped on the recipe on how to produce it. And it not only went to U.S. pharmaceutical companies, but But also international. So this is when they realized that they had this opportunity to make a stronger drug than our regular opioids or opiates like, you know, Oxycontin, Oxycodone. Um, morphine. For a long time, it lay dormant as far as the illegal market went, the black market went for fentanyl reaching street drugs. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until 2005-ish that the black market saw this opportunity. It's an opportunity that Mm -hmm. the the cartels and the drug makers saw. So What happened in 2005, 2007 is that a lot of people started going from crack to heroin and they were just looking and seeking that bigger high, that Mm -hmm. next Mm -hmm. high. Again, they were building up a tolerance to a certain extent. And unfortunately, drug makers or manufacturers saw an opportunity to purchase fentanyl illegally and cut their product, their existing product, 
So, for example, and I'm going to break it down to layman's terms because I had to to understand it myself because I don't cook meth or what have you. What? So- <laughs> what? We're happy about that. Let's say you're making a batch of cocaine. Okay. So you're making a batch and with, let's say you spend $3,000 making your batch. Mm-hmm. Let's say you can make $10,000 with it on the streets. Okay. Now you take that same three thousand dollar batch, mm-hmm. you spend maybe two three grand more on a batch of fentanyl, and you cut that original batch of cocaine with more baking soda, more fillers, more vitamin twelve, just crap that just it, white powders. Just Cheap. let's just say white powders. Yeah. Put in some fentanyl, which still makes what you're selling high inducing yeah. and mm-hmm. a drug and. It's this misuse, moronic thinking that they know how to be chemists and they know, capitalize right, on it. Yeah. Right. They think, oh, I'm just going to do, you know, so much on this batch, but they don't know what the fuck Invest they're doing. Invest a little more, have a bigger, right. yeah. Because this two, yeah. $3,000 investment, you would not believe, and I'm the sure profit. you would believe, the amount the of profit, profit that they're getting on the streets. Yep. So mm-hmm. on a $3,000 investment in fentanyl, they are getting upwards of half a million dollars right. in return, which is ridiculous. Yes. And how people that are producing it in the United States and in Mexico, they are getting it straight from China. Yeah. Yes. That's what I learned from your dad. Yes. So, so and your dad on the podcast said it very frankly, and he said, basically, they don't give a shit. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's really what it comes down to. There is some regulations in China that try to prevent it, but of course they're not enforcing them and people are still manufacturing it. They're still sending it out. Yes. So again, this is just for education purposes. What's happening is that it's getting made in China and it's getting... Because sent- it can't be made in just a regular lab. No, like it has to be right. a legitimate Pharmaceutical lab. grade Absolutely. lab. Yes. And there's too many laws here that are preventing the type of distribution. But unfortunately, China doesn't adhere to the same right. type of laws. Correct. So it's being basically made in pharmaceutical labs in China. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I okay. believe there are other countries, but yeah. that is one of the, the major, major distributors. Yes. 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 Of course. And then it's going into Mexico and the Mexican cartels and drug manufacturers that are bringing the cocaine, the meth, all the, you know, the bigger known drugs into the U.S. are cutting it mm-hmm. with the fentanyl and then bringing it to the yes. And then another portion of that is because the potency of fentanyl is so big they are able to disguise it and get it through our very own US postal service mm-hmm. in very non-detectable packages yeah because i can send you a letter and on the very tiny corner i can send you a little bit of it and you and the US service would it's never crazy. even know it there was a boat that was seized recently it had enough fentanyl on board to wipe out an entire country right yes the coast guard got it yes yes yeah yeah it's and that's i can't imagine no so because it's so potent they are able to sneak it in right under our noses yeah and these little packages are going to local dealers dealers yeah right filters down through levels or whatever. And right, and we'll get to the levels yeah. here in a minute, but it goes to those hired drug dealers that are, you know, 
manufacturing or cutting it even more and making turning it into something that it's not i mean obviously it's already a big issue but the deceitfulness of how they are selling Mm -hmm. this this is why we're here today to again to put it simply i don't go buying tylenol expecting it to have fentanyl right because if i have an ache if i have a headache i drink excedrin like they're candy and if I had to go buy it from someone, right. and it, I wouldn't expect it at all. Right. Or if you're at a party and you're right. with your friends and say, hey, you have some Tylenol, you're not going to expect that right. they're going to give you something. That's a great I, example because it's not coming from the store. It's exactly. not packaged, but I trust someone enough, well, I've taken, quote unquote, right. to get you what you're asking for. Exactly. I've taken Oxy from people. Like I've taken muscle relaxers from people. Definitely didn't get from a prescription. I don't expect that to be handed to me laced with something else and obviously that's not what taylor was expecting that day either yes Yes. and for anyone who's wondering they checked his text messages they have all the documentation he did not ask for fentanyl he did ask for oxy so you know sometimes there are questions well maybe he wanted fentanyl because there are some users people that want that yes there are some users who are asking for they don't want to to kill them Mm -hmm. they just are so at the point that they are not getting high enough off of the normal amount that they have Mm -hmm. that they want something that's giving them a bigger high which is you know a struggle with addiction unfortunately that's a part of addiction but for anyone wondering he did not ask for fentanyl right Right. either way even if he had he shouldn't die right from what i understand is taylor took one of each type of pill he got so he took one of what he thought was oxy and one of what he thought was xanax but obviously it was potent enough that even in that small dosage it was enough to kill him yes that's devastating yeah it was one pill of each something that i came across through all the research is that unfortunately some of the drug dealers get some type of notoriety when something like what happened to Taylor happens with their merchandise. Yes. Because in the streets, in their neighborhoods, to their potential buyers... It looks like they're getting the best high. Yeah. They're getting the good shit. Yeah. Yep. They have the strongest stuff. Yep. And that blows my mind that someone would carry that around almost as a badge of honor. Yeah. So unfortunately, there are dealers who pride themselves off of having the strongest stuff. And so they do they do try to buy the fentanyl from their distributors and they want the stuff that is going to unfortunately kill people. They're okay with it. Most of us who might be somewhat business minded would understand we don't want to kill off our customers. Right. But this but is for an them entire it drives sales. Yes, it's an entire different world. Because people who are suffering from addiction again are looking for their next high and if they can get it in one pill versus taking or oxycodone, mm-hmm. then they're going to pay for one pill. Right. And so, yeah. So they, they so it's essentially cost effective yes. for the user. Is what they're thinking. Right. Yes. But let's remember these uh, manufacturers, like you said, are not, they're not chemists. Right. They, are, they are literally mixing it up and saying, oh, that looks good. And then they're putting right. it into a pill press, which you can buy anywhere. And that shows that maybe one pill can be deadly. Yeah, because they have no idea what a dosage is like. The next 100 pills are going to give their quote-unquote customers what they are looking for. It's literally a trial and error. Yeah. Like, where they package it and they're like, oh, shit, somebody died. Like, that was too much. Like, Uh back to the lab. Yes. It's not like they're sitting there with a teaspoon measuring it out. No. 
No, no, absolutely. That not. would take too much time. No, no, no. they no. are they are trying to be as cost effective as possible on their end. Yeah, and that means oh, mix it up, looks good, press it as a pill, and they're also using different types of fentanyl. So the the fentanyl itself can have a different chemical. I'm not a chemist in any way, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It like it's chem- a chemical composition. Yes, yes. thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> the chemical That's the composition one. <laughs> yeah. can be slightly different and still be a type of a fentanyl. So Taylor, for example, had two different fentanyls in his system. Oh, one from the Xanax and one from the Oxy. Oh. Does that compound the issue then if you're mis- mixing two different types together you know, to your I, knowledge? I don't know the answer to that, but okay. I know that the amount that he had in his system was enough to be lethal immediately. Immediately. Mm-hmm. Wow. The antidote to that, which does exist, mm-hmm. is naloxone. Yes. Or Narcan. Or Narcan. And this is typically administered by first responders if they have the opportunity to yes to to reach them someone in time. Yeah. Obviously, that wasn't something that was possible for Taylor's case. So he could have been administered Narcan if someone had been there when he had taken the pills. They said he probably died almost immediately. And unfortunately, Taylor wasn't found for quite a few hours, so it wasn't at the point of being able to rescue him. So talk to us a little bit about Taylor's Law and what got you guys kind of started down this road. Sure. So Taylor's Law is somewhat similar to an overdose homicide law. Um, So when Taylor passed away, the drug task force team that is in Washington County actually worked his case because they knew something was wrong. You know, 24-year-olds don't just die. Mm -hmm. And so they did... From two pills. From two pills. Yeah. Exactly. They they found the baggie and it was almost completely full. So that's when I think they knew something was up. So they worked the case. They did some controlled buys and they were able to work their way up the tiers of drug Mm. of dealers. And so they were able to find three dealers. They actually knew the fourth tier but the third tier wasn't willing to turn on the fourth tier so they made it up to the third tier so first tier is the one who actually handed it to taylor Mm -hmm. second gave it to first third gave it to second so they worked that case unfortunately in the state of oregon there is no there's nothing to enhance any sort of charges or anything if the dealing causes death but there is the Lynn Bias Yes, Act. the federal. The Lynn Bias law is very strict. It's 25 mm-hmm. years to life if you're convicted of it. Very similar to a murder charge. They have to have their ducks in a row mm-hmm. for that kind of case. And unfortunately, because Taylor had Xanax and Oxy, that actually went up two different chains. It would have been difficult mm-hmm. for them to prove which one actually killed him because I both see. were in his system. Right. Okay. So that was the difficulty with doing the Lynn Bias. Right. And they probably weren't willing to charge multiple people with the same crime because right can't do that right and it's a it's a big punishment i mean you know they they don't want to send multiple people away for 25 years to life right when you know they don't they haven't narrowed it down right and determining who is really responsible here exactly Yes. So then when we went to state court, his dealers did not get much time. Uh, One of them got 12 months probation. Another one got, I think, a little bit of jail time. The first dealer in the case received absolutely no punishment, according to the letter you wrote. The second level dealer received 12 months probation for delivering a controlled substance illegally that resulted in death. And the third level dealer received 28 months in prison. But this was only because it was combined with a robbery he committed the following day. Yeah, so they were able to combine his case with Taylor's case because he committed it all within the same time, and they sentenced him based on that. But the 28 months 
most of that came from it would the not robbery. have been the case if he had not committed the robbery no. so realistically that actually hadn't was not anything on, to do with Taylor. Was he out on bond when he committed the robbery? Or he that... had not been arrested yet for oh, Taylor's okay. because they were still working up the chain. Got they it. were still working him when that happened. I just want to put this out there. My family is all about prison reform. We think that the mm-hmm. prison system does need to change. There are a lot of people doing time, you know, a lot longer time who should be doing other things, you know, rehabilitation or right. treatment facilities. So we are not advocating for throwing everyone in prison. We understand that that system needs to change. However, we are mm-hmm. advocating for the fact that we need to stop killing people. And it's not okay to be running free if you do cause the death of somebody. If you're driving drunk and you crash into somebody and you kill them, yeah, you're going to go to jail for Absolutely. a longer time than if you're driving drunk and don't kill someone. In this particular case, what I think is really important to point out, especially with Aaron's family, is that Taylor went and bought something that he did not receive. The cases where people buy drugs, where you are seeking out heroin, you are seeking out meth, you are seeking out pills, and that is what you get. If right. you misuse it, you you sought something out, you got what you were intending to get, and then at that point, how you use it is on you right. to an extent. In a situation like with Taylor, where what he sought out is not what he got, right. the decision was taken out of his hands yep. as to how he used it, what the consequences were of that were. That's a whole nother dynamic. He was left without the choice in that case. Taylor was robbed of that opportunity because what he was given was not what he signed up for. Yes. And addiction is a health issue. Yes. It's, it's not something that we need to be treating in the criminal system. Right. Addiction is something that needs to be treated by healthcare professionals. And I think our systems are starting to learn that. Taylor's Law is meant to target the higher level dealers. Mm -hmm. So the people who are not affected by addiction Mm -hmm. and are selling it not to feed their own addiction, but are selling it to profit off of others' addictions, which is not okay. It's one thing to sell a drug knowing that if misused by the purchaser... It can be lethal. Right. It's yeah. another thing to sell someone something that you know on the very first try can kill them. And yes. the, the potential is there and that you don't care. Right. Because yes. actually that is going to benefit you if it does happen. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're happy about it. Yeah. So yes. obviously level one is my plug down the street. Yes. I call them up. Hand to hand exchange person. The person I'm directly getting it from they're probably dealing to feed their own addiction yes in my experience the level one and they don't know what they have exactly taylor's law is not targeting that level of drug dealers if you could just explain to me you know what if anything makes the levels distinctive from one another and what level taylor's law be applied to i mean essentially the law could be applied to a tier one or a level Mm -hmm. one which i think is the fear like, it is that's the fear. where the fear stems from. Yes, absolutely. However, if that tier one knew what was in that pill, it absolutely should be applied to Agreed. them. Right. So that's where the investigative process really has to dig deep, look at text messages, look at, you know, conversations that tier one had with tier two, because that's where the knowledge would come mm. from, okay. is if they are aware of what's in that and then they're selling it, this would absolutely be applied to them. But if it's my buddy who also struggles from addiction and they just bought pills and are sharing them with me, right. this is not targeted at them. We're not trying to send people with addiction to prison for for 25 years exactly and so i I didn't say this but taylor's law is actually going to be shorter amount of time 
Last I heard, it was somewhere between five and 13 years. It's a minimum mm-hmm. of five and yeah. There's a range. It, yeah. it might even be a little bit less than that, especially based on our sentencing system here in Oregon. It's not meant to send people away for 25 years life. We're kind of moving away from sending people off Forever. for the rest of their life. Right. It's more similar to if you cause a DUI and you kill someone as far as the sentencing goes. Right. So tier one is just the person that hands over the drugs. And then tier two would be the person that they got it from. So it's kind of just like the trickle down effect. Usually tier, I would say probably between tier three and tier four Mm -hmm. are going to be the ones who know about the manufacturing or are manufacturing it. There can be longer chains than that. There can be shorter chains. That was going to ask, is that typical to the chain? Is it usually three to four or up to four? Is it longer? This one would be longer, but because tier three wasn't willing to flip on tier four and that's because tier four was his mom whoa shit tier four is actually mom and uncle so brother and sister whoa just a wholesome family operation essentially it's going to be an enhancement on yes trafficking or distribution of yeah manufacturing or distribution yes okay. and then also this is incentive for the people in the chain to uh-huh. give up their higher up. Ah, I didn't even think about it that yes, way. Yes, because one of those higher ups could be hit with this charge. Right. I mean, they could be. And if it, it generally in investigations, you know, they're going to be more lenient towards someone who gives up mm-hmm. the higher person because the higher you go, the more spread out their octopus tentacles right. are. Well, in this case, your third level tier spent 28 months in prison for somebody who is familiar with the system. That's nothing. Nothing. Like, for them, that's changing the couch. That's disgusting. So, yes. but well, five years is different. and disgusting at the yeah. same time. So, if I've understood this correctly, anyone who is knowingly, and it can be proven that they know what the product is, can be, Taylor's Law can be Applied implemented to them. them. Yeah. Right. So, so the language is still being worked on, but that's okay. that's that's what we're going for. So we're working because the original version did not make it through this last year. Correct, right. and that's because the funding committee essentially had already given away all their money for that year. So instead oh. of killing it, they mm-hmm. just decided to side table it till this next session. Okay, because they knew it wouldn't pass because there's no money. Mm-hmm. The chair Jennifer Williamson, she said, "We're going to side table this and we're going to bring it back next session. So we're going to be having a hearing this February 2020." So the money, what are the costs in it? What is the state waiting for? So the state has to balance how many, they have to do essentially like a mathematical calculation of how many more people this would put in prison. Oh. Mm -hmm. Ah. Which really, what we're trying to argue is, it would actually put less. It should put less. Yes. And it should cost less because the medical examiners are overworked right now because of how many overdose deaths there are. And the state has to pay for that. Yeah. The state is paying for how many times right. the medical examiners are going out and doing these investigations. So it should balance out if we start to sure. dwindle down on the dealers. This should be prevention. The dealer should start thinking twice about this. In addition to the money aspect of the prison, Jennifer Williamson wants Taylor's Law to also incorporate funding for treatment and prevention oh, within good. the state of Oregon. I think there is a tendency for people to have this perception that the answer to uh, law enforcement is just to lock them up. And your dad was a police chief. You were law enforcement. Like, you guys have had to deal with the system from the other side of it as well. And you've talked a lot about 
how things could have been different had the right resources been available for somebody like Taylor rather than just locking him up. Yes. I have friends that have literally gone to their probation officers and asked for help to get clean and they've drug tested them and put them in jail instead of actually getting them the services to help them. Yeah. This just happened to my friend like a month ago. Yeah. Well, sadly, the way our system is set up, that's their only option right now. The POs know that it's safer for them to be in jail than Mm. to be on the streets and potentially get fentanyl. And he said to her, like, I need help. What a terrible fucking dilemma. Right. So he went to her, like my friend in this case, went to his PO and was like, I need help. I'm struggling. And she was like, I really don't have anything for you. Like, I don't have any resources for you. There's no beds. But pee in this cup for me. And tested positive, obviously, because he said that he had been using and went back to jail. The POs have to wait for a bed in the treatment facilities to open up. Unless the person has health insurance, which covers rehab, which a lot of people don't. Right. Right. So one of the things that I have heard continually from your family is this is not our answer to everything. We're not saying throw them all in jail. No. Everybody. We are saying there is a huge issue here that we are not handling appropriately. Yes. The people at the top that are knowingly killing people. Yes. Need to pay a higher price if they are knowingly taking people's lives. Yes. And the people that are struggling with addiction and have these issues that are falling victim to this scenario need better resources. They need more help. Like we shouldn't have... 23 year old boys sitting in jail on Christmas right when they should be in a treatment facility getting more than 10 days of help yes absolutely and we need dealers to unfortunately we do need to lock them up at some point especially we heard testimony of at Taylor's last hearing of someone who had a recovering addiction Mm -hmm. and they were saying and I've heard this from many people that there were dealers standing outside of their rehab facility waiting for them to walk outside the doors well in the letter that you wrote you said that the person that sold the pills to Taylor was Taylor's co-worker knew Taylor was in recovery and he was clean Taylor told you guys that he had tried to sell him pills before and asked Taylor over and over for months Taylor said no at least a dozen times before finally giving in yes And the one time that he gave in is what caused him to die. But this person was literally harassing him to buy pills, knowing that Taylor was trying to get clean. Yeah. He knew Taylor was susceptible to it. And then sold him pills that ultimately killed him. Yes. And I think even in that situation, it's like the intention, maybe he didn't know what was in those pills, but the intention was sabotage. Yes. It's crazy to me. Yeah. There is... What is it called? Libyan. Oh, the Limbias. Limbias laws that you know have a federal blanket, but they try they don't to apply to everything, less, right? They more or less try to fry bigger fish. Yes, they it, do. Yeah, and that's bigger the thing, kingpins, and we and need do to that. make it possible for the states to operate at the levels that they need to, right? Versus going after the drug lords of the Mexican cartel right. or whatever. Yes, like and that, there right. isn't. We can leave that to the FBI. Yeah, and exactly. there is some states that have already implemented and adopted laws similar to Taylor's yes, law. Yes, many states. I saw, for example, North Carolina is starting, well, started December 1st, they implemented it, where they are actually going for 25. Wow. Woo. They are wow. going for it. Wow. If you could educate me a little bit on what the charges would be and how Taylor's law would enhance uh, an existing charge. So I think right now they're still working on the language. So it's the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office, the Washington County District Attorney's Office, 
other local law enforcement and then uh, the legal aid to Jennifer Williamson are all kind of working on how that's going to fit in. But essentially, I believe what my understanding right now, um, we won't know until closer to February, but it would be a delivery charge that is enhanced because it caused death. So essentially, it gives the judges, it opens the door for them to sentence them longer. Right. And then this will be in their criminal history. So it could be enhanced again if it happened again. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Interesting. Okay. So it's actually not under like murder. It's not under right. like in other states Which is they are. Fascinating to me because that is essentially what it is. Yes. It's it's a weapon in an yes. in a pill form or in what a, a powder form or whatever you may be. Like it's like Shakespeare when they put poison in your wine and yeah. you take a sip of wine. Right. And you exactly. Die. Yes. That is exactly what it's like. It's literally yes. poisoning somebody and killing them. It is them poisoning from it. someone. Yes. And the fact that you would have people that would go to prison for murder, but in this case, nothing happens to them. Right now, nothing happens to them. And they don't even have an enhancement on their criminal history, which is huge because when people yeah. repeat over and over and aren't yes. learning from their mistakes, the judge needs to be able to see what has been done or what they've done in the past. Yeah. What's worked. Or what yes. hasn't worked. What hasn't case. worked. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What hasn't worked. Or whether they've listened and, you know, turned their lives around or whether they have not. The website that shows the letter that you wrote, there's a very interesting section with FAQs and there's a lot. This clarifies Taylor's Law will not convict someone as a murderer. No. Or with a homicide conviction. My next question would be, Obviously, that's a big obstacle of the perception of how this is getting seen. Mm -hmm. So I want to know what, if any, obstacles or perceptions you've had to overcome of yeah. what people think that Taylor's Law's in intentions are. Ooh, that's a great yeah. question. And there's plenty of it. We had the ACLU show up to our hearing, and obviously they discussed their concerns. They want to make sure that people who are suffering from addiction are not getting sent to prison. And that is and our concern. the ACLU, my guess is that they also have the concerns of how this would be applied to minorities. Correct. Absolutely. In Taylor's case, your dad pointed this out, every single person that was involved was white. Every single one. Was white along the entire chain. So it affects all of our communities, all ethnicities. And so it should be applied equally to everyone in this community sure. is the hope. Again, a lot of times working up the chain, it's going to be people from all over the community. Right. The entire state, right. of course. But I mean, the in entire the Portland, country, yeah. Yes, the entire yeah. country. Everyone is affected by it. And so that's how it should be applied is working it, working the way up the chain. There is a lot of gang involvement in this. Mm -hmm. Gangs are making a lot of money off of this. Obviously, that could add to some disparity in min minorities being affected because yeah. a lot of our gangs here are minorities. We do have white gangs, and they are also selling drugs and distributing mm -hmm. drugs, unfortunately. So we want to make sure that we have a system set in place that this is going to apply to the dealers, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like. If they, if they know that they are putting something in this pill and they are not telling them, and they mm -hmm. it causes death, then it should be applied to that person. So the ACLU has has addressed those concerns, and I think the language has actually been sent back and forth between them to try oh, and wow. get them involved in this. I don't That's know how good. much involvement they've had. I know that they are still pretty strongly against it just because they don't want to add more people into the prison system. Sure. A quick question yeah. on that. In the cases where you would have, like, heroin, obviously, mm -hmm. is incredibly dangerous. Yes. People die from heroin overdoses all the time. Yes. If you were to go to a dealer and get heroin and then died from that heroin because you overdosed on it, 
would that be applied the same? Could still be applied. Okay. Up the chain. Yes. Okay. So this is not fentanyl specific. Not fentanyl specific. It's controlled substance specific. It's mostly aimed towards the fentanyls. Sure. A lot of our heroin overdoses right now are because they're cutting cutting it with fentanyl. And a lot of them, because they see that it's a heroin overdose, we might not be... I don't know if we're doing talk screens on all of those. I'm hoping that we are, especially with the fentanyl, but we might not know that it was because of fentanyl. But heroin is being probably just as much affected by the fentanyl as other mm-hmm. I mean there are there are other drugs Xanax right I mean why are you putting fentanyl in Xanax yeah right. but they're putting it in everything my first year as a police officer responded to a fentanyl overdose and that's in 2013 that was before this whole epidemic started and that was someone using patches and they didn't understand after their back, after their back surgery that they couldn't put two on at a time oh Jesus yeah so it's been an issue it's just now it's become more of a black market issue that is so scary yes Yes. So I'm glad that we're talking about this more because that is so scary. And to put it into perspective, everyone that's listening, and we'll probably post a picture of this, the amount that is lethal. It's microscopic. It's microscopic. It is scary. Mm -hmm. It is a couple grains of sand worth that can be lethal to a human. Mm Yes. Yes. And we'll put this up. There's so many pictures online. You can Google fentanyl. And there's pictures more notably of the of a penny, of, yes. our, of a U.S. penny. And it's so tiny. It's like the size of Lincoln's eye in the penny. Yeah. It's so small, the amount Sheesh. that will kill you. It's so lethal that police officers are getting sick from it. That was another question that I was going to ask you. I have a couple coworkers that our former law enforcement and I was talking about this and he said that for a time there they were really scared to go into these calls but as they're gathering evidence at a scene they were encountering little baggies or they were you know gathering the residue from stuff and just closing up a Ziploc bag and the you know Yes. Getting into the, the powder. air yeah. was enough to start causing some symptoms of using fentanyl, which is hard breathing, nausea, losing consciousness. Yeah. And so they were getting narcan Yes. Many law enforcement in the country. So many people at a huge risk. Yes. That didn't even know they were encountering fentanyl yeah. all the time. Their children walking around. Right. Yes. And going back a little bit to your dad, he's a very well-spoken man, and he, I think, said it best, and at least it gave me a little understanding about what he thinks jail time would do to someone, you know, if this um, were to go through or if they were to get time in jail. Brian, your dad, mm-hmm. he was former law enforcement, but tell tell um, listeners what he does now specifically because mm-hmm. he does have a background right. in yes. this. So he actually started on, on patrol when he was working in law enforcement and then he was in the special investigations unit which was their narcotic unit. So mm-hmm. he was an undercover drug dealer. 
he was, I mean, he was right there. He <laughs> I have had, a hard time imagining your dad as an undercover drug dealer. He but. had a mullet. He had his oh, ears pierced. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. It oh. was good. We have some home videos. So. I was going to say, with with your guys' permission, it's I will post a picture of what they look like now. Like pretty dad nice. And the family, but. Yep. You know, he looked the part. He looked the part. He looked the part. <laughs> That's so funny. And so he worked for a long time taking down, he was working big cases, uh, yeah. a lot of cocaine. That was back in the 90s, yeah. trying to get that stuff off of the streets, really working up the chain to the cartel. And that essentially who was bringing in a lot of the cocaine. Right. So he worked doing that. And then he moved his way up in law enforcement in 2010, I believe it was, is when he retired from the police bureau. And he's now uh, the executive director for a reentry center for federal prisoners. So this is a place where people at the end of their federal prison sentence can go and they essentially learn how to re-enter into normal oh, life. how to transition into Yes. So they help them scene. build their resume. They teach them about technology, which has developed in the last wow. many decades because some of them have been in there for decades. Like they literally don't even know how to work an iPhone or a computer. Yeah. He's worked at that facility. He helps them build their resumes, go out and find jobs, reassimilate into the community, make money so that by the end of their prison sentence, so this is six months to a year of the end of their prison sentence, sure. they can go there if they've been on good behavior and they qualify for it and they have family and resources and support here. As they're there longer, they get more privileges and sure. they have a garden. It's a beautiful garden that a couple of them are, are building and it's wonderful. Um, so he's in charge of that. He was actually just there on Christmas Eve making sure that they all had, you know, knew that people cared about him. So that's amazing. It's a pretty cool, cool. He, you know, put him in at the beginning and now he's helping them come back into society as as the citizens and right. community Foreign members that citizens. we want. Yes. Yeah. Right. People who are contributing to our community. Your dad mentioned that his philosophy on people who would get punished for these crimes would have the time to think twice about how they're living their lives and think twice about going back into the streets and, and doing what they know how to do, but giving them resources while they're in Yes. on how, like you said, be good members of society and know that there's other ways to make money and other ways to survive and live and that selling drugs isn't the only option. Yeah. So it shouldn't be seen as only a punishment, but an opportunity. Absolutely. Like in the case of yeah. my brother's case, the, I mean, to get pulled away from your mom and uncle who are have been dealing you drugs probably since you were a child might be a good thing. Right. I mean, you're getting away from that situation. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, like he said, it, the ideal world, they would be given resources in prison, which prisons do have resources, mm -hmm. but in a better, more functional mm -hmm. situation, they would be given the resources and skills right. to come back and try and get out of the situation that they were probably born into right in in that kid's mm -hmm. case yeah. with the mom and the uncle right right because the system obviously there there's a lot that needs to be fixed it, it's not going to be like a perfect like taylor's law goes into effect and right. magically right. everything's better no. like this is really just like a first step towards yes. making sure that people that are causing the death of other people by giving them things that they should not be giving them are being held accountable for their actions absolutely yes. Moving forward from that, obviously, there's a lot more to be addressed as far as what happens with that time. And, yes. you know, substance abuse in general has a mm. long ways to go. Yeah. But it is, I I think, a step in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's the treatment and education side, which my mom has been working 
solidly on. I don't even know if I told you. Yeah, this family is like literally like compiled of the most amazing people because you have Erin who does what she does. And do you think you would have gone to law school if all of this hadn't happened? No. So like you had mentioned much earlier on, I was responding to a lot of overdoses and it was it was really getting to me. And then the stuff with Taylor's Law has really inspired me to understand that we don't have to live within the black and white structure that we have Mm -hmm. been born into. We can Mm -hmm. make changes. Then we also have this incredible mom in the middle of the whole thing. So (laughs) please tell us about your mom, your mom's name, everything like that. So my mom is Brenda Martinick. She's a chief of student services. (laughs) Hi, Brenda. Hi, mom. She's a chief of student services for the school district here and she has started the real program r-e-a-h-l i do not know all the word all the words that it stands for the acronym no i don't know the acronym (laughs) but it was a five-year implementation plan to get treatment inside the schools because a lot of students who are suffering from mental health and addiction issues specifically high school students were having to either use their own health care which not all of them were covered by health care or they were having to rely on their parents to take them to their appointments after school and parents are busy okay it doesn't matter where you are who you are parents are busy well and particularly for the district that your mom works in you have two huge extremes here so you have a lot of people that are living very low income where they are susceptible to easy access drugs and you know poor home lives and everything like that but on the flip side of that you also have a lot of really high income families yes And a lot of kids that have their parents' credit cards. Yes. And they are left unsupervised because their parents are both working professionals that work long hours. I'm sorry, drug dealers are taking credit cards now? (laughs) Venmo, Venmo, baby. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. they will take Venmo. Yes. Yeah, no, they will take Venmo. But that's a huge issue, like, particularly in, like... They have money. They have access to... Lincoln High School, where you have a lot of parents that are working professionals. They work very long hours and a lot of income, and kids have access to this income. And they spend it on stuff like this. Yes. So that's where your mom enters. Yes. So she has got a grant from the state. And so now there is going to be an actual treatment high school within the Portland Public Schools. So people who need to attend some sort of addiction or mental health treatment, they will get it as a part of school. That's amazing. You go to math, you go to art, you go to treatment, you go to PE. So it's just there. You don't... You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to pay for it. It's going to be there for you. And then mental health. And so they're really starting to focus on getting that for their students so that we Mm -hmm. can get rid of this addiction or try and get them on the pathway to recovery early on. This would have literally changed lives in my high school. Yeah. The high school I went to, I'm sure the high school that you went to, Jesuit was not immune. Yeah, private schools are not immune. Public schools are definitely not immune. Nope. I can think of so many people off the top of my head that would have been in this program. I know that people would have been impacted by it. Maybe it didn't save them all, but if it saved one, it's worth it. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. If we can save one one life, this whole effort is worth it because no one should have to go through what my family and all the other families are going through. Right. It's horrible. And so often this starts with, with dumb stuff. It yeah. starts with painkillers from an injury. It yes. starts with... For the lack of a better term, kids being kids, and that's unfortunately the perception that we have of it, and that's how we treat it, is kids being kids. What we fail to see is, like, there is an opportunity here. It's not just kids being kids. There is an intervention that can happen, and there's help that can happen. And I think that what your mom has done is just 
mind-blowingly innovative i absolutely i so think brilliant. it's amazing i'm, I'm like speechless so the brilliant. fact that so... not everybody is doing this yes. is beyond me yes why would we not do this for people you in know, other situations you know why that is though because it's still shameful to talk about it yes yes absolutely People don't want to recognize that their son, their cousin, their yeah. brother, their neighbor yes. themselves have an issue with addiction. Mm-hmm. And because it is a mental illness, yep. it's just, you know. And often combined with other mental illnesses. Right. Exactly. Taylor it's not struggled, a probably undiagnosed with bipolar, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Or and, a cyclothymia, something close. Right. Yes. And we see that so often with people that struggle with addiction that there's added mental health right. issues that aren't being addressed if that could be identified at a young age that would be so important so what is the next step for taylor's law at this point so you mentioned something about february so what's happening then so the house judiciary committee for the state of oregon has to agree to give yeah. taylor's law a hearing and from what we've been told and we trust them they said we are going to get a hearing most likely this February 2020. And so basically, like my last hearing that I went to and wrote mm-hmm. the letter for, we would go back and discuss it in front of them, and then they would decide on whether they wanted to pass it through or not. And it sounds like we have a lot of backing with multiple areas in the community, in addition to the people at the state, to pass it through. So it sounds like it is moving along very nicely. And so once that happens, then it would move on, and then it would be uh, voted on within the, the state. Sure. And so it could potentially pass and start next January. Wow. January 2021. When did you start this whole process of Taylor's Law? So we started it, we started working together. So there was a group of us from the two different district attorney's offices, Mm -hmm. my dad, some local law enforcement and I, uh, in June following when Taylor passed away. Wow, that was rather quickly. Yes. And you guys have done a lot in that relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting to me to watch your family rise above this. Like Thank you. when Taylor was suffering with it, we were quiet about it. I mean, yeah. we didn't know anybody else who was right. suffering from this. And it is a family issue. It's not just Taylor suffering from addiction. Which is interesting. The irony of that, like, I don't know anyone else who was su- suffering from it. And you probably did. Yeah. But they were all keeping it quiet, too. Yeah. And we were keeping it quiet mostly because Taylor wanted us to. He was so embarrassed of he looked at it as something that was bad about him. Yes, a weakness, which it's not. You know, we use people first language in my house. My mom is all about that. So he is a person with addiction, not an addicted person. But he didn't see it like that. He saw it like he was an addicted person and he was broken. Yes. And so he definitely kept it a secret. He, like I was talking about earlier, he was very presentable and he didn't want that image to be tarnished. And so, you know, we love him and support him and of course wanted to do that for him. But as soon as he passed away, we, and even a little bit before we started to understand like, hey, we need to not keep this a secret. This needs to be talked about and it needs to be talked about within the community. Right. Not just addiction, but also mental health issues. You know, when we're talking about suicidal depression thoughts and depression it all blends together i know your family tried and taylor tried to get help and to go into those rehab centers i imagine that it took probably a couple calls or research on where to go how was that process was there walls of that taboo of like should i just say i'm coming in for this or you know what i mean so what what was that That was an uphill battle. Mm. Taylor asked for treatment multiple times when he got arrested. 
when he would see the sure. judge. A lot of times it just wasn't an option for him. His first... Like my friend. Yeah, it wasn't an option because there aren't enough facilities who have beds that are connected with the criminal justice system. Um, there are a lot of them that are covered by private health insurance. So Taylor had his own health insurance. And so that's how he was able to get in. But even they don't have beds for very long. That's why he was only there anywhere from, you know, 10, 15, 20 days. He did get in one time because the judge, you know, said, I will release you if you have a bed. And so that was how he got in the second time. But I mean, it took years to get him into treatment. And then when we did get him into treatment, we would tell them, do not release him. He's schmoozing you right. essentially and and he knew that he wanted to go home right. he, he just want, he wanted to be sober there's no question about that it's just you don't want to be taken out of your home and in, put into a facility with a bunch of strangers especially when you yourself don't feel like you are like them right because it's so quiet well, that's what i was gonna say is like he probably looked around him and thought i don't belong here he did yeah he did he was actually there with another local female from an upper class high school that actually reminded him, brought him back down to earth and, you know, reminded him, hey, we're all in this together. We're, this is affecting right. everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talked about her. He actually was pretty upset. She passed away from an overdose oh, shortly after. Oh, wow. And so he was very upset about that. But he didn't know anybody right. who was suffering from addiction or even people suffering from mental health issues. And so he would show up and not know anybody there. Right. And well, he and didn't want to be probably- there one of the young ones there too he was one he was the one of the youngest yeah so that's another another thing about it too is like you you feel like i'm not supposed to be here i don't look like these people i'm not and then for taylor too it's like well yeah he didn't know anybody that was struggling with the same thing maybe right probably did yeah he just didn't realize it but when you're in that situation where you don't feel like you have people in it with you they're just not there yet right because a lot of the people that were there were people that were much older than him. Yeah. And I don't mean like, you know, 80 years old, but they were, you know, in their 40s and 50s, they were, they had been established adults in their communities and he yeah. was still in college. Right. So it was a different situation. But as we're learning and as we know, it's everywhere. Yeah. And in every age group. It's just some are better at hiding it than others. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you're, you get to a certain stage in life where you're like, all right, I'm sick of this. And it happens when you're older. Yes. When you're younger, that's not the case. Right. Cause you don't think it's going to happen to you. Right. You're yes. just, you're partying, right. you're having fun or whatever. Whereas when you get older, that's how you're coping. That's how you're functioning. Yes. But when you're young, you're just partying. Right. So you don't see it for what it is. Right. Until you're sitting there however many years later and yeah. addiction is running your life. Oh yeah. Taylor did not know he was going to die. His chai tea was still dinging in the microwave. Oh, that's unsettling. Yeah. It's crazy. The concerning part is that that is mostly who it's affecting people who, and let's just clear it up, are not suicidal. Correct. Right. They have no intent. They have not had, you know, dark thoughts, have made plans, have, like you just said, your brother had something planned for the next five minutes after doing what he was, you know, taking what he was taking that is that is heartbreaking. I would argue it's almost the opposite too. Not only are they not suicidal, but what they're doing is trying to live. They're yes. trying to. They're making it trying possible for them to function. Yeah. Yes. So it's the exact opposite. Like it's not not obviously the healthiest way to do it, but that's yeah. how they're trying to cope and make it through their day to day. He died on a Saturday, and he was going to be manager on that Monday. And he had a book about learning how to be a manager. I mean, he was just trying to get ready. 
It's so, it's so, and that's part of the reason I think that the system is where it's at is because it's so complicated. There's so many people that are affected so differently. Yes. So you have your families that are impacted by it, people who struggle with addiction, and then you have your first level dealers that probably have the same thing, but they're also supporting their habit and making money. And it just, it gets so complicated. It's tangled. And how do you even begin to address it? That is where our investigators are... I mean, the ones who deal with those cases are just, I mean, they're incredible people. The, yeah. the, the woman who worked our case, she was absolutely incredible. And she, you know, if she found something that didn't go towards our case, she told, she told us, you know, I mean, it's just about being honest. It's about finding mm-hmm. out exactly what happened, exactly who gave what, whether the person knew. That's one that's of the big the pieces. Big yeah. yeah. That's going to be where we need extremely talented investigators out there. That I would think would be really difficult because your job is to deal with the facts. And obviously, like when you have families involved and people's feelings involved, you know, emotions run high in that situation. But also, I think the frustration would be in being an investigator. Then you turn that over to a legal system to do with it what they will. So you can find everything that you want and do all, you know, the whole investigation but then you turn that over like you don't get to do anything with it. You turn it over and somebody else takes that. And then they're the ones that prosecute based on the information that's found. And I think that's where things tend to fall apart. Yes. And that's where prosecutors' hands are tied right now. Yeah. I mean, they can do delivery at the most. Right. And because one of them... they literally can't charge anybody in this case because no. there's no law to charge them with. No, no, it doesn't fall under any of the homicide languages. That's so interesting to me. Yeah, it, it really gets my, my wheels turning on how the fact that that evidence is there, you know, I'm sure this has happened already that investigators have found out they knew it was fentanyl, it was something deadly, and they couldn't do anything about it until yeah. this, till now. Yeah. Hopefully with Taylor's Law, that will change. Yeah. yeah. And that they are able to use laws and statutes Maybe change things. Maybe mm-hmm. change things. Yeah. For the better. Yeah. yeah. And it's not an overnight change. It won't happen overnight. No. But you guys are being so patient about this <laughs> because it has taken some time. Yeah. And it has but, to be frustrating. Yeah. It, it's yeah. frustrating. But also we understand we need to get the language right. Because what you were saying is, I mean, when you are dealing with laws, you right. deal with words. Right. And the way the words are placed. And mm-hmm. that's why that's why I couldn't answer some of your questions about how it's drafted. Because we need to make sure we get those words right so that, you know, there is no abuse of power. And we're not right. using it to nail mm-hmm. people who are suffering from addiction. And yeah. we're using it to get the very small group of people who are manufacturing these yeah. and selling them as something else. But those are the people who need to either be held accountable for their actions mm-hmm. and or deterred from doing it. Because okay. if they see, because right now they know they can get away with it. So There's sh- nothing stopping them from doing it. And what I admire about your family so much, too, is that in this case, the opportunity for Taylor is probably gone. Yeah. His dealers and the people that oh. ultimately took his life will not suffer consequences no. based on this law going into, into effect. But what's amazing to me is that Despite that, your family has continued to do what they're doing to make sure that this doesn't happen to other people. Yeah. Yeah. We need to. Right. We need this community, too, because we just, I mean, you know, our laws are old. Yeah. (laughs) They really are old. Nixon's war on drugs was quite a few decades ago. Yep. And so we need to reform things and change things. And while this one, a lot of people think is making things stricter, I would argue it's making it 
less strict and less of a focus on people who are suffering from addiction and more on distribution side right. because yeah. we need to stop selling drugs Address for people the problem to at the root. stop taking them. Yes. Right. So the other fear that the ACLU and others have brought up is that people will not call 911 when there is an overdose. They're afraid that someone who's right there and sees it happen will be too scared to call 911 because they're afraid they'll get prosecuted for it. And we absolutely do not want to advocate that or no. say that that's going to happen because we need everyone calling 911 when right. they see somebody down on the ground. We also are advocating for people carrying Narcan. I mean, yes. it, it is it is happening in our community. OHSU, for example, is giving out Narcan. They have a really? sign posted mm-hmm. at their pharmacy that said, if you or one of your loved ones could suffer from an overdose, talk to us about this and we will give you Narcan. Yep. I saw what looks, it, it was weird. One of the videos I, I stumbled on and it was almost a promotional video that it was said, if you're doing drugs, yes. if you know someone that's doing drugs... It says carry Narcan, carry Naloxone. Mm -hmm. It also gave other instructions of if you're doing it, do it with a buddy. Obviously, if you're doing willingly and and knowingly, if you know you're doing drugs, do it with a buddy and take turns to see if your buddy has adverse effects to it. And if so, use the Narcan that we've already told you to have. But that's, I mean, that kind of goes back to... It's it's a terrible promotional video. No, but it's not, actually. It is it isn't. Because it kind of goes back to the point, like, you're not going to stop the demand, but you can stop the supply. Educate people. Right. Educate people on what to do if... It's like, it's the same thing as sex education in high school. You're not going to stop kids from having sex in high school. But you can give them the tools to be safe. Show if them took, how to put on a condom. Right. If we took condoms to... out of high schools, like that's not going to help anything. You're only going to get people pregnant and STDs spread. But like show people how to be safe and smart about it if you can't get rid of it altogether. Like be realistic yeah. about the world we live in. That's true. Yeah. So many people that are impacted directly by it. Yep. But you also have on the flip side of that people that don't understand it. Right. So... If you don't understand it, if this isn't something that you're impacted Mm -hmm. by, that shouldn't mean that it's less important to you. You should still understand and have a basic education of what's happening in your world and your community. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And understanding that addiction is not something that people choose. No. They have not chosen to become addicted. Right. And I I have an addictive personality. Like, look at the way I pound through Diet Coke. If I didn't drink Diet Coke the way I did, I'd be a full-fledged alcoholic. Like, I – people have addictive personalities – they just channel it differently. Yes. Right. For some people, it's food. For some people, like me, it's Diet Coke. And for some people, it's drugs. Ultimately, we make choices on how we handle our addictive personalities yep. and your addictive tendencies and your lean- or how you tend towards certain uh-huh. things. Yeah. But that that is there. It is part of our genetic makeup. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do is make sure there are resources to that protect those people. Yeah. I just want to thank both of you for addressing this issue. It's so huge. I was just at an event for Lines for Life, which oh, is I saw the pictures from here that. in the yeah. community. Yeah. And so it was specifically for Youth Line. And so it's a peer-to-peer crisis line. So oh. if someone is suffering from some sort of mental health suicide uh, crisis, they can call and they actually speak with another peer. And so I think these kinds of resources and talking about being open about mental health and addiction and making it normalizing it. I mean, it's it's something that someone is suffering from and it's okay. It's okay to talk about. So thank you for bringing it up and talking about it and inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun. 
we're so appreciative of everything that you've done and your family has done. It's always amazing to me to meet people, especially women like yourself, that get involved with this kind of stuff and really take it and run with it. And the fact that you guys, as an entire family, have all done such extraordinary things with it. It's obviously the most tragic of situations, but what you guys have done with it is really beautiful. So thank you. I really, I just admire you guys so much and I so appreciate you being willing to do this. Of course. Absolutely. We want to talk and, you know, make sure that other families know it's okay to talk about it and that we're here. They can reach out to us. They can reach out to me, can reach out to my parents. They've been very open in the media about that. Uh, We want someone that they feel comfortable that they can speak with. We have a Taylor's Law email. Great. What's the email? It's taylorslawor at gmail.com. So Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R-S, law, L-A-W-O-R, at gmail.com. And that goes to you, the family? It goes to us, the family. Yes. Great. So if you guys have questions, if you want to reach out, get more informed, or are looking for resources or help, email that email. You can also email us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com and put Taylor's law in the title or in the memo line. And we will get you guys in touch with the Martinex. You can also go to our Instagram. I'm sure that we'll be posting links to either local resources. We will be posting that on our Instagram, which is at a stranger danger podcast and our Facebook page, stranger danger, a true crime podcast and Twitter SD True Crime Pod. There we go. Thank you again to Aaron Martinick for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.